always winter, ever Christmas. Always winter, never Christmas. You have to be a C.S. Lewis fan to know where that comes from. Anybody know? Narnia. Chronicles of Narnia. If you don't, or if you're not familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, you need to get familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia. I came across this little anthology of books when I was in seminary just to read for fun. I've read them to my children as they were growing up. They learned to read them to themselves with their favorites, and now they read them to their kids. You need to get them. I can tell you're about ready to run right out and do that now, but you might want to wait just a little bit. What happened in that story is the white witch comes to Narnia and casts a spell, and her decree is it will always be winter and never Christmas. When the spell is finally broken, this iced up, snowed over place of Narnia starts to melt. And before long, Father Christmas himself shows up in a sleigh, ringing bells and handing out presents and gifts to everyone in Narnia. And there's excitement and joy and the melting of the pandemic of, of snow is going away. And, and pretty soon, uh, as he leaves, he does this. He shouts out, Merry Christmas, long live the true king. Man, I get goosebumps just, just telling you that story. I... The pandemic is not quite over yet, but it's melting. We may not be there yet, but it seems like we're over the hump. I hope so. But we've gone through this season of Christmas, or excuse me, of winter without Christmas. And what happens in Narnia is the, the drip, 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 drip of Fear and anxiety and discouragement and despair melts away and blossoms and blooms of springtime of hope and faith start to come up. And we recognize that the king is still the king. And he's still alive. You may be wondering what happened as you walked in here on Memorial Day. You didn't want to come anyway and now you don't even know who I am. But I'm, I'm not Matt, I'm, just in case a lot of us, a lot of people get us mixed up. And uh, my name is Don, one of the pastors on staff here, and so glad to be able to share with you what I think addresses what is one of the major emotions going on in our nation and perhaps our world as we, uh, as we watch the, the dripping of the pandemic. It's a word called discouragement discouragement. I mean, it's hard to go through what we've gone through without having faced that somewhere along the line. In fact, I wonder if, if you've at all felt discouraged in the last 30 days, would you be brave enough to raise your hand? It's kind of a universal thing. How about the last year? Yeah. It's, it's a huge emotion going on with us right now. And I just want you to know, it's, it's, it's so common. It's a universal thing. It's so common that you can't hardly read the Bible without coming across somebody that's dealt with discouragement. Moses, he was discouraged. He um, had failure in his life that he had to recover from. He tried to lead a people that grumbled and, and moaned and griped constantly. Had to discourage him. 
but he came through that. Elijah takes on 400 false prophets of Baal and prevails, and then one woman comes into his life and criticizes him, and he melts and runs and hides. Joseph tries to survive one of the most dysfunctional families you could ever think of. Nehemiah inherited a city that was in complete disrepair. Go into the New Testament. Peter, that's my favorite one because it's self-discouragement. Here's Peter telling Jesus, you can go to the cross and count on me. I will be with you every step of the way. I won't be like all these wimpy people just flaking out on you. I will be there every... Yeah, how'd that work, Peter? Before long, he's going, I can't believe I let him do I can't, ah, oh, I can't believe it. That's what I go through half my life going, I can't believe I did that. Ah, oh, I can't believe I said that. I can't, ah, oh. you get discouraged. John Mark, who helped write the Gospel of Mark, gets fired from his spiritual mentor. What do you got to do to that talk about discouragement even jesus himself had some discouragement some discouraging times with the people made him just shake his head discouragement is is universal we all feel it and we're coming out of that season of winter and you're maybe still trying to shake that discouragement off and you're going like wow i really am glad i came to church today so i can be even more discouraged <laughs> this is I just want you to know there, there's a little bit of hope in this whole thing because even though it's universal and it's and it's it's one of those things that you just it repeats itself and it's contagious you get it and you give it and you get along people and it, and it can even be deadly dreams die with discouragement marriages die with discouragement people on the road of following Jesus fall off the road because of discouragement families break apart Churches split up. Nations fall because of discouragement. I want to introduce you to a guy who came into one of the most discouraging situations ever. They didn't have just one year of pandemic restrictions. They had 92 years of despair. 92 years of despair. We barely had over a year, and we're like, ah, 92 years. His name is Nehemiah. So in order to set this up, I'm going to give you a real brief Bible survey. Don't be that excited about it. It'll, like two, three minutes. Are you ready? In fact, this is what will help. <laughs> one, of, one of Matt's wonderful phrases that I, that I like to tease him about is, are you with me? Are you with me? So I'm going to ask you through this, even if you're not with me, to say yes. So let's pray. Are you with me? Yes. Don't talk like you're talking to Matt now. Are you with me? Yes. Oh, thank you. Now you can go back to sleep and pop back up. This is the boring part of the message, and you're going, well, what was the first part? Well, this is the boring part. So you know that it starts with Genesis, creation, and all that kind of thing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. They go to Egypt in slavery for 400 years. Moses leads them out of slavery. It's called the Exodus. He has a little help from Charlton Heston, and off they go. 
Red Sea parts and that kind of thing. Joshua helps lead them into the promised land. They're in the promised land, and there's, they have to learn how to inhabit this place that's so foreign to them, and they have judges and, 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 and prophets that come and help along the line. They finally get all together. They're in the promised land, and they go, we want a king. We need a king. Give us a king. And God says, ah, you don't want a king. No, we want a king. And so they give him a king, and the first king's name is what? Saul. Is he good or bad? Bad, very bad, bad, bad. So after Saul comes David. He's their second king, good or bad? He's good. He's a good guy. Little things like adultery and murder, but uh, it's another story. The next king is Solomon. Good or bad? Yeah, he's half and half, kind of good and bad. After that, it's a disaster of kings. So, are you with me? <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> there. <laughs> Now I know why Matt does this, because if I keep asking this long enough, it takes like 15 minutes of preparation away. Are you with me? <laughs> Welcome to my last time ever speaking in front of you. <laughs> I don't think they taped this service, so it's okay. Uh, <laughs> um, so so they, uh, they're, they're 9, 920, 933 B.C., and they're one nation, and then all of a sudden they split because of ungodly leadership, and one other thing, taxes. I'm not even going to comment on that, but that, that splits them in two. Ten tribes go to the north, two tribes go to the south. The north is called Israel, the south, Judah. The capital of Israel is Samaria, the capital of Judah, Jerusalem. Very good. You're still with me. <laughs> you just chuckle. Not yes. That's wait. Yeah. Okay, so while they're split up like that, 722 BC, the Assyrians come in to Israel, the North Kingdom, and wipe them out. And wipe them out completely. Nothing left of their tribes, nothing left of that nation, never to be seen again. They are wiped off the face of the earth. Not long after that, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon sends his armies into the southern kingdom. They come in, they destroy Jerusalem, they knock the walls down, they burn the gates down, they destroy the temple, they just blow up the whole city, but instead of killing everybody, they handcuff them and take them off to captivity in Babylon, which is basically Iraq today. March them all the way there. That's called the exile, or the Babylonian captivity. So two major mountains in Old Testament history, or in Jewish history, circle around the exodus and the exile. Interesting enough, Nehemiah is the last book in the narrative history of the Old Testament. So even though there's more books after Nehemiah, all those other books fit into that narrative somewhere. So after Nehemiah, there's 400 years of silence, and Matthew begins. While they're in captivity, they're there for 70 years, which is longer than what this explanation even feels like. <laughs> and finally, at the end of 70 years, the king says, you guys want to go home? Have at it. Head back. And so they go back in three waves to Jerusalem. The first wave is led by a guy named Zerubbabel. I love that name, Zerubbabel. 
And two grandsons, one's named Micah, one named Ezra. I keep praying for one more and name him Zerubbabel. I don't think it's going to happen. But maybe they'll get a hamster or something. Well, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel goes with a group of people, and their, their intention is to rebuild that, that city to no avail. They find abject poverty, destruction, despair. The people are, are downtrodden and in a mess, and as much as they try to rebuild, nothing happens. A second wave comes from Babylon, led by a guy named Ezra, who goes in with the same intention, and his main idea is to rebuild the temple, which has been destroyed, and he does to a certain extent. But the temple that was destroyed was a beautiful edifice made of marble and gold and fine jewels and rubies and topaz. He builds this wooden thing that instead of being this inspiration of, hey, we've rebuilt the temple, it's more of, oh, my goodness, how far we've dropped. This, oh, it was a monument to their despair that even the house of God was dilapidated. Nehemiah is back in Babylon. He's a wine taster to the king. Not a bad job, if you can get it. Highly trusted, tastes the finest wines of, of the culture at that time. The only thing is, if someone decides to poison the king, yeah, he gets it first. So you got to be careful. If I were a wine taster for the king, I'd have a wine taster for the wine taster. I'd, <laughs> a little side job to one of the high school kids or something, but... <laughs> so he's there <laughs> he's there and and um one of his relatives comes to visit and he's like oh man tell me about jerusalem my heart goes out how's it going there and his relative says it, it it is not good it's horrific it's destroyed and now since the first wave came in it's been 92 years Probably Nehemiah hadn't even been born yet when that first wave went in, right? 92 years. And they, they described all the rubble and they described the burnt out gates and described the broken down walls and this lean-to temple looking thing. And here's Nehemiah who's this great action leader in the Old Testament and his first response is he weeps and he mourns and he cries. You talk about discouragement and despair. It's winter, it's winter, it's winter. There's no hope. There's no moment of celebration. It just gets worse and worse. Probably asked a lot of the same questions you and I have asked these last year and a half. What in the world's going to happen now? How long? We got to keep the, it. Are we going to survive this? What, what in the world do we do? He weeps. His grief, though, leads him to God and prayer. And he starts to pray and to fast and to seek God. And God starts to light a fire in Nehemiah and a calling in Nehemiah that Nehemiah leaves his cushy job in Babylon and leads the third wave to Jerusalem with the intention of rebuilding something. And he goes into the gates and he can't believe what he sees, but he starts to try to rally the troops and he's calling the city together and calling them to action. And the first six chapters of Nehemiah are all about that building process to the point in the middle of the sixth chapter it finally says, and the wall was built and completed, and get this, 
in 52 days. What couldn't be done for 92 years is done in 52 days. And he gives all the credit to God, so much point, to the point that the Bible says, the neighboring countries and even his enemies heard what he had done and heard about this God and lost their self-confidence because they knew God was back with his people. Nehemiah calls everybody together. What was the turning point? I think in the second chapter, verse 20, there's one little phrase that he, he gives in response to some critics, Tobiah and Sanballat, who are like just nipping at his heels, complaining, criticizing, making fun of him, sarcastic, letting him have it. And finally, he just says these words that to me have rocked my world, have anchored my world, and I give to you today as we come out of this pandemic and we look to the future and a season of winter, a season of discouragement that hopefully is melting away because I believe if you'll catch a hold of this truth, live it, love it, memorize it, put it into practice, it will change your life. I came across this verse a number of years ago when, when we were getting ready to build this, the first um, phase of this church building. And we had just gone through a process of raising money over a million dollars to buy the land, which was a God miracle we've talked about before. And, uh, and I got together with some of our leaders and we, we talked about what we wanted to do in our dreams and the architect had all the plans and stuff. And, and some of the leaders started saying, uh, yeah, there's only one problem is we need to raise all this money. I think we have a thing called donor fatigue. I had never heard that word before. It came out more like donor fatigue. <laughs> it was like, what? And these were some of the ones that had really carried the ball. And I go, you guys got it? And they said, yeah, kind of. And so how are we going to get our people to raise all this money? I, uh, winter started to set upon me. I don't want to be in that school anymore. I'm going to put, a, put a, a tough shed out on there, and, and, and we'll do something. But we're, we're, gonna, we're getting out of here. We're, and I started preaching through the book of Nehemiah as we were, as we were wor working our way up to raising funds to, to, to be able to do this building. And I, ca I came across that verse of Scripture. And every day I'd go to my office, I'd open it up, and I'd read it. And I read it daily, 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 daily until I memorized it. And then I just repeated it over and over and over. And I have it up on the screen, and it said out of the New American Standard Bible because that's what I memorized back then. And what little did I know is not only did it get us through this time, it, it, got, it got Lori and I through a a lot of things. We're going to have 43 years of marriage here in June that we celebrate. And this scripture helped us. About 45 years of ministry, and this scripture has helped me. About 11 years ago, I had a spinal injury. And I woke up with the doctor saying, I don't think you're going to walk again. And I didn't even have to go to the Bible. I just went to my head. And I repeated over again. The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will arise and build. Said that over and over again to build this church, 
I said that over and over again, and laying in a hospital bed and in a rehab center, Don, the God of heaven will give you success. We, his servants, will arise. You'll arise. You'll get up again. And you'll build a life. And you'll rebuild your life. And you'll rebuild your ministry. When winter comes and discouragement comes, I give you this verse of scripture. The God of heaven will give success. As you can see, we're sitting in a little bit of a success that it's become a lot more successful through the years with Pastor Matt and his great staff. I'm not a pretty sight to walk, watch what I walk, but I do, uh, I go on two legs now, well, kind of three with a cane. But the God of heaven gave me success to arise. Take this verse of scripture. I'm gonna break it up, break it down for you in, in four parts. The God of heaven that's a, that's a God-centered attitude. It's a God-centered focus, if you will. The God of heaven. Nehemiah knew if he was going to do anything, he had to get back to God. And so he reconnected with God, and he, he repented before God, and he, he prayed, and he fasted, and he, he laid out before God in prayer, and he, he searched his heart, and, and he renewed this whole commitment to God, making God the very central focus of his life. And it was that which was the foundation for this promise to come true in his life, that God was at the center. In the Old Testament, before Christ came, there was no recognition of who Christ is, but you take it, God, the God of heaven who has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. It's Christ-centered beginning for us. Here's what I, what I notice about us as, as Christians. I, I call them three C's of, of being a Christian. There's Christ, there's the church, and they're centered. So, as a Christian, we have Christ. We, we believe in Christ. If you don't believe in Christ, you don't have that relationship with Christ, you, you wouldn't even put yourself in that category. So we have Christ. Most of us go to church. Some of us once a week. And you're the good ones. <laughs> it's okay, Matt. I'll be back next week and you won't have to. You'll get stars. Some of you go once a month, once, once a quarter. Some of you are Christmas and Easter. You just check up to make sure everything's still okay and nothing's changed. Some of you are online, which we're thankful for. Church is, you know, church is part of it. We got that down. We got Christ down. We got the church down. But where we fall away so often is making Christ the center of our lives. That we center on him and make him the central focus of our lives. It's a whole new ball game when he becomes the center of our life. What we center on is what fills our life. What we put at the, at the hub of our life is what fills us. So I've got a little list that I put together of, of different things we can center on which will fill our life. Self-centered. And the result is being unhappy. <laughs> Do you... Do you know very many self-centered people that are happy? The result is unhappiness. Looks-centered. If, if you are all about your looks and all about your image, the result is insecurity and inferiority because there's always 
a blemish, and there's always someone that looks better than you, and you're always worried about, oh, no, what about, no. And even if for just a, a window of time, you had it perfectly, you looked perfect, you were the perfect 10. There's a thing called old age that comes in, and everything drops, sags, and wrinkles, and doesn't work right anymore, and you're failure-centered. If you're failure-centered, you don't even want to try again because you're just going to fail. Oh, no, here we are again. You, you get the Eeyore attitude. You know, the Winnie the Pooh Eeyore, oh, bother. Oh, oh woe is me. If you're other-centered, you worry about what others are going to say or think. A person or a group of people, what do others think? And all you do is worry and worry and worry and worry and worry. Social media-centered. Uh-oh, now I'm kind of digging a little bit in here. here. Here's my guess. I could be wrong, but my guess. No judgment, just my guess. My guess is that most of us spend more time on social media than we do in the Bible. Me included. That's why I can guess that way. No judgment, just true. So... That becomes a bigger, a more central part of our life than God's word. And the result is usually bitterness. I heard one guy say one time, you spend enough time on social media, you're going to get madder and dumber. <laughs> I think there's some truth to that. Bitterness, I'm not like them. I don't have, my, 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 my uh, pictures don't line up with their pictures. Last one's problem-centered. You just get disillusioned. It's too big of a problem. There's too much rubble. There's too much mess. I can never get through this thing and just delusioned. Whatever we center on, there's a result of that. Nehemiah says, I'm going to be God-centered. I'm going to be Christ-centered. Because if there's hope in a season of despair, it's going to come from the God of heaven doing something in my life, in our lives, that only God can do. There's a church, um, there is a church in the Midwest very significant church, had huge impact on churches, still does, and on ministers and ministry, and, and introduced the whole um, seeker-sensitive orientation and strategy, which, you know, they, they won thousands of people to the Lord, and everybody was jumping on board of that, and so certainly nothing wrong with that, but they came to a point in their life of the church when they realized that, that their people were hitting a ceiling, and they were never going any further. That they, that they accepted Christ in their life, they were part of that church, but that Christ-centeredness was never happening. And, and so they, they actually publicly repented that they had led churches astray, that, that they needed to go further, and they came out with a whole different strategy of discipleship that took people from this, this really shallow Christianity into a more mature discipleship Christianity. And in that process, they had a little illustration that, that I love. It said this. If you think of your, of your life as you're driving in a car, and um, you're going down the road, and you're not a Christian, Jesus is on the outside of your car. So hopefully he's on the road where you can see him, and he's got his thumb out or something, but he may not even see him. You're just, you're happy as can be without him in your car. You go where you want. You go as fast as you want. You go as long as you want, you go as short as you want, you stop for as many big gulps as you need to do, you just keep going and going and going, it's your life. When you become a Christian, you stop, you see Jesus, and you invite Jesus into your car. 
You want him to be a passenger. Jesus, we got a lot of room in the back seat here. Come on in. Love to have you in the car, Jesus. It feels so good. Forgiveness. Whew, I love that forgiveness. Thank you and the grace and the mercy. Lord knows, man, I need all. Oh, thank you for being a part of this. And would you bless our car? And would you bless our journey? And oh, by the way, Jesus, would you protect us so nothing happens to us? And would you help us get there a little sooner? And, you know, maybe even one day afford a little better car? And Oh, man, we just love having you in the back seat. What they said is... Um, there's a, there's a point when those who are really following Christ, are really committed to Christ, invite Jesus to get out of the back seat and come into the front seat. And those who, who will often do that will say, come on, Jesus, sit right here next to me um, and navigate. You tell me where to turn, I'll turn. You tell me when to turn, I'll, I'll do that. At least I'll consider it. I may not turn, but at least I'll know. And, and you will now, in fact, I'll, I'm going to put a little bumper sticker on my car. God is my co-pilot. <laughs> what they said is, what Jesus wants, what he asks of us, is to not just be in the front seat navigating, but to be in the front seat driving. To be in the driver's seat that he controls us, he takes his agenda, it's his values, it's his purposes, it's his direction, and we go along with him. In fact, I'm working on a little country song, I don't know if it'll take on, it's like, uh, Jesus, take the wheel. There might be potential for it, I don't know, we'll see. Take the wheel, Lord, this is yours. Now, Here's what rocked my world. They said, when Jesus is outside your, your, your vehicle and you invite him in, it's a crisis experience. It's called salvation. We celebrate it. We baptize because of it. We, we rejoice when Jesus comes aboard. It's a crisis. You, most people can say, I know when I, was, when, I, when I got saved, I know when I committed my heart to Jesus, or at least I know when I was baptized. That was a, a memorial. Memorial Day, I'm building a monument to always remember that Jesus was, was, was entering, entering my life on that day. Then they said this. It is almost as much of a crisis experience to get Jesus from the back seat to the driver's seat as it is to get him in the car to begin with. Wow. Wow. In other words, it doesn't happen on its own inertia. You ask him up. You invite him up. You surrender that wheel to him. You give it over to him. And it's a crisis experience. It's, it's, it's not easy to do. It's much more fun just to drive around with Jesus in your back seat. And we in our lives, and often in our churches, reflect a faith that has Jesus along for a joyride rather than the Lord of our lives. Nehemiah says, if I'm going to get through this season of winter, it's going to be God-centered at the foundation. And then it's going to be faith-focused. God of heaven, 
will give us success. I know there's a lot of rubble. I know there's a lot of failure. I know that the circumstances don't look good. I know that there's, that there's piles and piles of mess. I know that people are discouraged and in despair. They're in a mess, mess, mess. But we're not going to focus on all that. We're going to focus on what God can do. And I'm going to stake my life on what God can do. I didn't leave Babylon to sit around in the rubble. We are going to change this city. And God is going to give us success because it's his heart to do so. His city. Faith-focused. How do I live a faith-focused life? I'm reminded of what he's done in the past. He's been faithful in the past. And I'm reminded of his future promises. And I focus on both of those. Like I said, 43 years of marriage, 44 years of, of ministry. I don't know how many more years God has for me in life. Here's, here's all I can tell you. Here's what I've learned in all those years. God's faithful. God is faithful. He just is. He's just there when you need him. He just shows up on just the right time. He comes in the darkest moments, in the times of despair. He comes up when you think there's absolutely no hope, and he's he's faith. Joe talked about building altars of stone. I've I've got altars all over the place. God showed up. God showed up. I don't know what else to tell you than that. He's been faithful. And however long I have to live, I know this. He's got some promises. And I know those promises are yes and amen because he's been faithful before. And he's trustworthy. And I will focus on that. I had lunch Friday with a guy named Jaime, Pastor Jaime from Honduras. And you're going, oh, great, thanks. wonder who you had lunch with. Some of you, this will be like, woo, woo, woo. Some of you that are the old timers here will, will really, this will... This will put some things in perspective. I talk, we had our 25th anniversary not long ago, and I talked about how we got to land, and we gave water. We raised money for water to Honduras, and um, um, it only took $5,000, but we were trying to raise a million dollars or more, and I'm like, oh, man, our church is, they're not, I have to ask them for money to build, and here we got to ask them to get money for Honduras, and we, we raised not 5000 but 25000 Our sister church raised another 25000 So instead of 5000 we had 50000 So there was enough water to come down the mountain. Clean water to a city that only had dirty water on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 3 to 5. Now had 24-7 clean water. Not only enough for their own little community, but for two other communities. So instead of 30000 over 100,000 people, clean, fresh water. Families were saved. Children were no longer getting sick. And there was this little itty-bitty church of about 50 people in this old run-down shack that we directed everything to so that every time somebody turned the water on, they knew it came from that church, and that church exploded, exploded. Jaime was a discipleship training student at that time, and he's now the pastor of that church. I hadn't talked to Jaime in 15, 20 years. I hadn't talked to him since we left Honduras and raised that money. And after lunch, after he told me everything, he came up and he put his head, little guy, put his head on my, on my shoulder and said, Pastor, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You blessed us. And you blessed Honduras. I said, what, what do you mean? He goes, well, that little building's no longer there. 
it's, it's, a, it's a big old campus now, especially in Honduras terms, in, in that rural town. And it has one building that our sister church, Mountain Park, helped build that is housed by Compassion International so that every day hundreds of children are fed in that community and in communities beyond. Hundreds of children get fed through Compassion International. Not only that, they have planted four other churches in Honduras and two other churches in Nicaragua. You let that sink in for a minute. And my whole story is, oh, God blessed us. We got the property. Now look at McDowell. Isn't it great? And hey, we got Desert City, and we've got Arcadia City. And, it's a, and you know, man, God's blessing us. And it's be all because we were faithful. And it's not even half of the story. There are now four, five, six, seven churches because of that. There are kids that are getting fed every day because of that. There are people that are coming to the Lord that never would because of that. And here's the thing. I almost never brought that up to our church because I was afraid of failure. I was afraid no one would respond. I was afraid, I was afraid people would think I'm crazy. And we answered the test. And God gave success that I'm still learning about. And one of these days, when we're all in heaven, we're going to find out even more of people that are standing there saying, we know Jesus, we are here. Because you did something stupid and raised $5,000 when we were trying to raise a million dollars. We are here because of McDowell Mountain Community Church. We are here because the God of heaven gives success. Faith focused. He'll do that for us. He'll do that for you as well. Servant heart is the third thing. We who are servants, we are his servants. Notice it doesn't say we who are his spectators. We are his servants. We are who, we are the, in the same way that we just spent some time with the, with the people, uh, um, thanking pe people that have served in, in, in our armed services, men and women who have served. We're, we're so grateful because you served but Memorial Day is even more than that. It's about those who served and never came back. Who played the ultimate sacrifice, gave the ultimate sacrifice of their very life. That we can begin summer with a barbecue and a swim in freedom. Servant heart always captures the attention of God, and the result is always bigger than, and better than whatever serving. <clears throat> I had an old preacher tell me one time, you know what, if, whatever you want in life, if you'll give that away, you'll get it. <laughs> I, that doesn't make sense. There's not a business school in America that teaches that. You give it away, you'll get it. You want joy? Go to somebody that's discouraged and downtrodden. Cheer them up and give them joy, and you'll walk away from that experience the most joyful person out of the whole bunch. You want love? Go start loving some people. And you'll have a ton of people love you back. You want kindness? Be kind to somebody. and They'll be kind back to you. Someone else will be kind back to you. You want blessing? Learn to give of your resources and of your time and of your abilities. And God blesses that. He's just wired that into our world. 
if we can ever catch a hold of that, it's the servant-hearted that, are, that move the hand of God. There's an old story that uh, the Pope got sick one day. And uh, Lori told me not to tell this because you guys won't. Anyway, never mind. But the Pope got sick one day. I'm telling it anyway. And I'm out of time, but I'm telling it anyway. Are you okay? Are, are you still with me? All right. The Pope got sick, <laughs> the Pope got sick one day. And uh, everybody gathered in St. Peter's Square, and they were praying for the Pope, and praying for the Pope, and praying for the Pope. And they, as they started to, to find out what was wrong, before they realized his heart was the issue. And so they, they would keep giving reports to the people who were praying, and, and then one day they just said, hey, you really got to pray because the Pope's heart is in bad condition. Pray more, pray more, pray more. Days go by, and they're still out there, thousands of people praying for the Pope. They finally find out that the only solution is for a heart transplant. So they go to the people and say, you really have to pray because we have to find a heart transplant for the Pope to live. The one old guy stand there, just feels all this courage come up on him, and he just says, take my heart, Papa. Take him my heart. And he starts to shout it. Take him my heart, Papa. Take him my heart. And pretty soon, a couple other people join in. Take him my heart, Papa. Before long, the whole crowd is chanting, Take him my heart, Papa. Take him my heart. Cardinals can't believe what they're seeing. All the officials, they, get, they huddle together and they say, Well, that's a, that's a huge sacrifice. The Pope's a pretty important guy. And so we should take somebody up on it. How will we do that? They came up with this solution. They went and told everybody about that. They're going to drop a feather off the balcony, and where it lands, the closest person it lands to, will be the heart donor. And so they explained everything and let the feather drop, and everybody's going, Take it, my heart, Papa! <laughs> Take it, my heart, Papa! <laughs> I wonder how many times we do that. I wonder how many times we sit in church and we sing the songs, open up your heaven. Let your spirit fall on me. Let your presence come upon me. Let your anointing come upon me. Let your peace come. On Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, till we come back again. Servant-hearted people. Finally, I'll end with this. There is an ending it's future focused. We who are servants will arise and build. In a city of devastation, he says, you know, it's not about the past. It's not about what happened. It's not about how we got here nearly as much as it is about what we do for now. Do from now. Arise. Let's get together. Let's build. You never go forward if you're always looking backward. Or if you're always looking at your circumstances. There's things to learn from what you've gone through, but somewhere along the line you have to just say it's, it's about the future. How about your life? Nothing you can do about the past. But you have the whole future to live it the way that God intended for you to live. How about your marriage? Made some mistakes. Not in the best condition, but the future doesn't have to be that way. For your marriage i will give you one quick little commercial we have a thing called re-engage marriage ministry we've we've had a couple semesters of it over a hundred people in our church have gone through it 
I'll tell you this. I used to be kind of humble, but I'll just tell you this. It's life-changing. It's marriage-changing. Your marriage will not be the same. It could be in despair, and there's hope that's given. It could be just flatlined, and there's a spark that re-engages. It could be good, and it could go to the next level of great. It's going to be this fall. It's every Tuesday. It's a big commitment. But it's time to arise and build the marriage that God wants for you to have. Arise and build your family. Arise and build your faith. Arise and build the church. Arise and build the community. Arise. If just one or two people can make a difference like that in, in old Jerusalem, what can we as a church do to make a difference in, in Scottsdale, and Fountain Hills, in Phoenix, in the whole valley, in the state, in this country? Arise and build. Don't bury the kingdom of God because of a little pandemic. The church is not done. God's not done. Jesus is not done. He's still changing lives. And he's still making a difference. He's still rising and building if he can find people whose heart is set on them, centered on him. Faith-focused. Servant-hearted. Giving themselves to arise and build. As we leave today, I, I wonder, before you do, I'd like to just go back to that Christ-centeredness for a moment. A memorial day, it's a good mark day. It's a day of, of making a memorial marker. It's a good day that if you have Jesus outside of your car, you've never invited him into your vehicle, that you would do so right now before you leave this place. Simple, a simple prayer of invitation. Hey, would you come in my car? I don't deserve it. I've messed up. I don't even know where I'm going. I just need you in my car. Maybe you've done that, but you've been driving around for a lifetime now with him in the back seat. Wouldn't this be a great day that you'd remember forever, Memorial Weekend 2021, when you gave him the driver's seat? And watch where he takes you. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Lord, in this sacred moment, hear the invitation of hearts and minds today. Whether to join in for the very first time in a life, or whether for how many times we've asked before that we just have to recognize, I'm not going the right direction. I need you behind the wheel. Would you come into the front seat? Would you come into the driver's seat? Thank you for accepting a simple invitation like that. In Jesus' name, amen. Rise up, O church of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of kings. God bless. You're dismissed. <laughs>